Hey everyone, it's Christina, Tim and Sean here from The Good GP. You may have noticed that we have been a bit MIA this year. Well, we are back. But before we get into this episode, we have some changes we wanted to share with you, as well as some good news. Yeah, that's right, Christina. Since 2016, The Good GP has been produced by the amazing team at ROCGP WA, and we're so grateful for their support. In particular, we'd like to give a shout out to Hamish Milne and Lisa Francis, who have put so much effort throughout this time. Moving forward, The Good GP will be produced by the team at Talking Health Tech, a leader in the innovative health podcast space. The good news for you guys is that not much will change. It's still us, same name, same format, and we'll still be delivering short and punchy episodes on all things general practice. We're hoping that with this change, we can get episodes out to you more frequently and engage with you, our listeners, more. Speaking of which, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions for future topics, or generally want to say hey, drop us a line at thegoodgp at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP, the educational podcast for busy GPs. My name's Christina Delange and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands upon which this recording is taking place, and that is the Yagara people, as well as acknowledging elders past, present and emerging. Now for today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Angie Burkhardt to talk about recurrent staph infections. Angie has been on our podcast a few times now, so it's great to have you back, Angie. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. And it's actually great to be talking to you about something not COVID-related for once. (laughs) As a paediatric infectious disease consultant, we've had you on a few times to talk about some COVID matters, but um, today we're talking about something not COVID-related, but very much something that we see a lot in general practice, and that is the recurrent staph infection. So I'm going to start off by asking what are the common infections caused by Staph aureus? And I guess what factors might contribute to recurrences? So I always think with any infection, I always think about, well, where does the organism usually live? So Staphylococcus aureus obviously usually lives on our skin. And so the most common manifestation of Staph aureus infections would be skin and soft tissue infections, which could either be a cellulitis, an abscess, impetigo and then obviously you can also get toxin mediated disease so you can get bullous impetigo or staph scalded skin for instance and then if you get hematogenous spread you can pretty much get it anywhere in your body with the exception being actually a staph aureus meningitis is actually less common so when we see cns infections it's more in the setting of intracerebral abscess but essentially um with obviously i have a pediatric focus Uh, So, you know, in children, it's not uncommon for us to see uh, bone and joint infections. Um, And we don't really understand why we see more bone and joint infections in children, potentially because they've got growing bones and rich blood supply. And then obviously, some of the other differences between pediatrics and adults is, you know, infective endocarditis is actually really rare. And typically, we would see infective endocarditis in the setting of a staph aureus infection in someone who has an abnormal structure of the heart, so usually a background of complex congenital heart disease. So they would be some of the common manifestations that we'd see, but obviously skin and soft tissue infections would be the most common. 
And what about the factors then that contribute to recurrences? Why is it that some people seem to get, you know, these recurrent boils, recurrent impetigo, you know, just to name a few? So we don't actually really understand why, which is always like surprises me. There are some things we see so commonly in medicine and then actually we understand them the least. It's really interesting. So we definitely know that there must be host factors. So we know, for instance, a, a patient who has eczema uh, would be more likely to have issues with recurrent stuff or infections um, and skin infections in particular. We know that they're you know, in families where there's a lot of family members in the household, that potentially there are other factors that can increase your risk of recurrences, particularly crowded kind of living, but we don't really understand. And so also I think one of the interesting factors with recurrences is that we know with an acute infection that obviously your innate immunity plays a vital role, so your skin being your first line of defence and then probably your neutrophils after that, but then really your adaptive immunity and recurrent staph aureus infections, we don't understand. And, you know, some of the studies that have looked at particularly um, the adaptive immunity in people who do have recurrent staph aureus infections, they can't quite work out what is it about them that means that they get a recurrence. So unfortunately, I don't, don't have that answer to that question. <laughs> I'll leave it at that then for the outbreak, Sergi. So then how common, or well, I guess moving on to MRSA, you know, a type of staph infection, how common is MRSA and what do we need to know as GPs about MRSA? When should we be looking for it, swabbing for it, you know, or considering our antibiotic choice when it comes to MRSA? So I always first off think, well, are, are there any risk factors for MRSA? So um, are they Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander? Have they previously had MRSA? So particularly if they've had it in the last six months, is there a close family member that has MRSA that they live in the household with? So they would be some of the common risk factors that you'd screen for. I think not necessarily. I think a lot of the time with these skin and soft tissue infections, you've got time. So you can take a swab, you can wait for that result to come back. And if you did start them on fluoxacillin or cephalexin, we use a lot in children because that is one practice point that is quite handy to know that fluclox liquid tastes awful. And so compliance is terrible, which is why as pediatricians, we use a lot of cephalexin. And then obviously, if they're tolerating tablets, we should be using things like fluclocacillin. But you know, you have time. So you could give them fluclocacillin or cephalexin, you wait for the swab result, and then you could change based on your sensitivity results. But I think in terms of how common is MRSA, it is really handy to know, well, what is your local epidemiology in terms of resistance patterns? And if you're unsure, you know, really your, your local hospital, so you could approach your infectious diseases unit at your local hospital or even your local pathology and just ask them, well, what, what are my rates of MRSA in this area? So in Queensland and in Sydney, Brisbane, it's around 20%. That it really depends on where you live. Potentially, that's going to differ if you live in the Northern Territory or far up north in Queensland. So I think it is really important to know, well, what are your local resistance patterns? And then coming back to other useful practice points related to MRSA. So obviously in children, the, the main oral options that you've got, and there are more oral options, but I'll, I'll start with the, you know, your first line is Bactrim or uh, clindamycin. And similarly with clindamycin to fluclocacillin, the liquid preparation tastes awful. So compliance is terrible. So I would never prescribe a clindamycin liquid. And so really, if you can, if they're not taking tablets, trying to use Bactrim. If you had a Bactrim-resistant isolate and clindamycin was your only oral option, 
One of the other things that sometimes I'll do, and I think this is where it can be really handy working closely with a pharmacist, and you could phone your local pharmacist, is just to potentially round up the dose to what the nearest capsule would be. And sometimes you can release the contents of the capsule, but obviously that that's not precise, but that's one of the things from a practice point that you can sometimes look at doing where you can't use Bactrim. I love that practice point, Angie, because actually there's been a lot of shortage of Bactrim lately, so it is something to know that there's an alternative if we, you know, if we need it. So what about staph eradication regimes, I guess, then? What is a staph eradication regime? You know, what does it involve and when would it actually be indicated? Sure. So in terms of who I would usually do it in, so potentially I'd even do it after first episode, particularly in a child that needed to go to intensive care with a staph aureus infection. Other than that, I would, it would usually be on their second episode. I'd be talking about staph eradication and there's a, a lots of different staph eradication that you can do. And so there's one on therapeutic guidelines. And I, I've worked in a few different hospitals. And I think along the way you get used to different guidelines and you work out which guidelines you prefer. And so I, I am aware that I've got a bias that I work for the Children's Hospital in Brisbane. And I, I really like their staph eradication guideline that they have. And you can access that. So if you just Google CHQ recurrent boils, our guideline will come up. And it also has quite handy information for the families as well. So the general approach in that eradication is that you would treat the acute infection, which is usually seven days of antibiotics, and then following that, you're looking at chlorhexidine washes or bleach bars, and usually in terms of how you distinguish, as I ask the family, do you have a bath at home? And if they don't, use chlorhexidine washes. And then also you'd be using Batraban as well for about five days. And then I always give counselling to the family as well in terms of washing all their clothes, their sheets, which is it's really painful, but, you know, one of the little things that you can do. And then after they've completed that kind of acute phase, then they do go on to a maintenance phase of at least twice weekly chlorhexidine washes in the shower. The other thing that I always do in my staph eradication when I'm seeing these families is because they do develop a bit of a complex that they're dirty and that's why they're getting recurrent staph aureus infections. But I always preface this by saying, number one, it is so common. And also, number two, it's not unusual for the eradication program to fail. And I think that also is one of the reasons why as clinicians, it is a bit of a heart sink consult because you just see that they keep coming back with these recurrent staph aureus infections despite doing supposedly all the things right. They've had completed their antibiotic course, they've done the eradication, you know, the mother's done all the washing and the cleaning and they're still having recurrences. And I think I always counsel them in terms of that is really common. So I'm going to drill you down on a little bit of detail because you did mention the Bactroban ointment. So in terms of like what are they actually doing with the Bactroban? So one, I, to be honest, I always bring up our guideline and even therapeutic guidelines and just follow it precisely. But essentially they're putting it in their nose. So you're trying to minimise nasal carriage of your staph aureus because we know that a proportion of the population just carried in their nose. So um, you're using it in the nose for about five days I think the other just side practice point just to, to be aware of, I think in the past we've used Bactroban a lot for treatment of Staph aureus infection and one of the reasons why we've moved away from that is because a lot of Staph aureus now is resistant to Bactroban, so the mucopyrosin. 
So that is why we've moved away from treatment. But in terms of the nitty-gritty details, some of the guidelines are fantastic. So I do think that the CHQ guidelines is, I think, one of my preferred guidelines in terms of looking at recurrent boils. Don't get me wrong, there's definitely times where I think that the real children's guidelines are better. So um, I think you just work out which ones you prefer clinically. And I literally sit down and follow it to a T. But that's the rationale for doing the Batraban in the nose. Thanks for that. And sorry if you didn't mention it, but family members, are we treating the whole family at the same time, kind of similar to what we do for head lice and, yes. you know, scabies and that sort of thing? Are we doing... Yeah, so it's everyone in the family needs to have it. So obviously they wouldn't have the, the treatment course, but they would all have the eradication. So everyone in the household are getting all their linen washed, all the clothes washed, and then they're going also having the Bactraban and the Chlorhexidine or the bleach pass. Yeah, great. And a practice point, I guess, for me and something that earlier on I didn't kind of realise I would do the staph eradication treatment at the same time as I was giving the antibiotics for clearing the actual active infection. And I guess I've kind of become more aware that generally you want to clear the infection, treat any underlying skin disorder as well, like get on top of the eczema too, you know, and then do the staph eradication to give you the most, I guess, um, success, chance of success. And I think that's a really good point about treating whatever the underlying skin condition is. And I think that that can be one of the main reasons, particularly in eczema, where they fail. And so really, I think that's a really key point that you do need to optimize the eczema management in these eczema patients with recurrent staph aureus infections. That's really important. Yeah. So segue then into failed treatment. I mean, what do we do with these kids when they come back? They've had lots of boils or lots of impetigo. We've treated them. We've done the staph eradication. We've gotten the whole family to follow through with this. What's the next step then if that treatment isn't successful and they end up with another infection? So this is a common scenario. And to be honest with you, majority of the time they are going to fail. Maybe, maybe I'm being uh, nearly negative uh, here, but you know, it is quite common for them to fail, which is why always in that initial eradication, I always preface and say that if this fails and they get another recurrence, that is not uncommon. Actually, it is quite common. And so to be honest with you, this is where it's now a little bit of an evidence based free zone. And so different clinicians will do different things. Um, and I think you kind of work out what your approach is based on working with different people and then just from seeing patients. So my general approach is then usually I do the eradication therapy for two weeks instead of the one week. But there's no, that's evidence based free. Like that's just based on, um, I, I worked under someone who that was their approach. And, you know, a lot of the time infectious diseases, uh, sometimes we'll just double the duration. Uh, we always do try and do evidence, uh, you know, with good evidence base. But yeah, my general approach is then I do two weeks and I always just warn families. Um, that, you know, potentially they will need multiple eradications and we know that failure is really common. In a subset of patients, and this is really rare, and probably if you've had multiple recurrences, we do see these children in our paediatric infectious diseases outpatients clinics. I'm not not quite familiar whether adults would normally see um, adults with recurrent skin infections. I suspect not, but in paediatrics it is really common and so we would see children who have had multiple failed eradication therapies and sometimes we'll think about suppressive therapy with antibiotics but that's very much a last resort. Are there any investigations that we would need to be considering in these kids if they are getting recurrent staph infections like I'm just thinking about immunocompromised and things is that something that you guys go down that pathway? So I wouldn't say recurrence 
skin and soft tissue infections. So when I particularly with staph aureus, one of the big immunodeficiencies is chronic granulomatous disease, which is usually X-linked recessive, but you can get autosomal recessive. So sometimes we do also see it in females as well. But the, generally when I would think about testing for chronic granulomatous disease would be more so if they've had an invasive staphylococcus aureus infection or a severe infection that's landed them in um, intensive care. Usually that would be more the setting I would test. In these recurrence um, skin and soft tissue infections, probably less so. So the only time I then, if someone was having recurrent skin and soft tissue infections, that I would think about immunodeficiency screening would be more if there was an unusual organism that they'd isolated, but not so much staph aureus unless they hadn't recurrent invasive infections or had had a severe initial invasive infection. I'd think about testing from an immunodeficiency point of view. And I think that probably there is not only host factors that make you prone to recurrent staph aureus infections, there also must be something about the staph aureus isolate particularly, that there must be different strains that potentially are making you more susceptible to recurrences. But like I said previously, unfortunately, it's just really well um, not, not understood. You've mentioned the CHQ resource on, on doing the staph eradication regime. Is there, are there any other resources that you think would be helpful for GPs to know about? So therapeutic guidelines is the, one of the best resources. So collectively, it's written pretty much by a lot of different infectious diseases, physicians and pharmacists throughout Australia. And so really it's our go-to resource. So it's not frequent uh, when I'm having a GP phoning me, asking me how to treat something, you know, that will have uh, therapy guidelines up in the background. That's the thing with infectious diseases. You're based in your office and um, have all your resources and know where to go. Um, but yeah, so therapy guidelines is fantastic. I, I always do really like the Royal Children's Hospital Clinical Practice Guideline, and they have got one also on if you just Googled recurrent staph aureus infections, but it's more specific in eczema. And so that is a, a resource. But I actually noticed recently they're linking out to the CHQ guideline now. So we're trying to do a little bit more of a nationwide guideline and now. But they're my two go-to resources. But to be honest with you, there, there are so many different guidelines out there. But I think therapeutic guidelines is always a great resource for GPs to start out. And then I think aside from that, you know, there are specific hospitals that I think do certain guidelines really well. Well, Angie, thanks so much for your time today. It's been great to have a little bit of an update on this topic. Hopefully our GPs around Australia have found that helpful. Thank thanks. you so much. Thanks for listening to the Good GP Podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech Podcast Network. Make sure you're subscribed on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions or would like to contact the Good GP, send an email to thegoodgp at gmail.com. The content of this podcast represents the opinions of the good GP, hosts and guests of the show. The content is aimed at general practitioners working in the Australian context and is not intended to represent medical advice. Any listeners experiencing symptoms or who have concerns about their health should seek advice from a registered health professional. We make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate and up to date at the time of recording, but welcome any feedback or corrections. The content of this podcast is general in nature and does not refer to specific patient management. We recommend all health professionals review local and up-to-date guidelines prior to any clinical decisions.